Hello and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Pajajski and I'm a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together we are bringing you A Future Made, a podcast by Heriot Watt University. In this series we've been finding out how pioneering research at Heriot Watt in the fields of science, business, technology, design and engineering is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today and make an impact on the global stage. Today, we're discussing the burning issue of decarbonisation and hearing from academics in the university's business school. If you look around where you are now, almost everything that you see got to you through some form of road freight logistics. We'll speak to two academics at the Research Centre for Logistics and Sustainability, plus we'll chat to a Heriot Watt alumnus from the Dubai campus. Right, Anna, it is that moment in the podcast where I ask you how much you know about today's subject and invariably you know so much more about it than me already. So I'm going to go first this time. We're talking about decarbonisation and it's interlinked with the conversation we had in a previous episode where we were talking about net zero and carbon capture and storage technology. But this week we're focusing on logistics, travel and transport. We've got this commitment from government that we're going to be net zero by 2050 and actually transport is the largest emitting sector of greenhouse gas emissions in the UK. It produces almost a third of the total and in 2018 road freight accounted for around 30% of global CO2 emissions from transport. So that is more than shipping and aviation combined and worryingly the emissions are actually going up at a time when they really should be going down. And we also saw the HGV driver shortage this year. So I think that's really drawn into focus the importance of logistics in getting the food to our table and not only that but almost everything else that you care to mention in the world around you. People might have heard of the concept of food miles. You know, this is the concept of like every piece of food that comes into our house has travelled from somewhere, right? And the amount of embodied carbon or the kind of the how bad that item is for greenhouse gas emissions will be at least slightly proportional to how far it has travelled. Now, there are lots of different variables you know, the the way that it's travelled, whether it's road or air or by the sea, um, and also, you know, how much energy it took to grow, etc. So it's not an exact science, but it gives us an idea of how sustainable at least the food that we eat or the products that we get into our homes are for us. And so this idea of decarbonising means reducing that carbon footprint, really, you know, reducing the greenhouse gas emissions that come from creating and manufacturing goods in one place and transporting them then to users somewhere else and really trying to reduce those carbon emissions to tackle climate change. If you look around where you are now, almost everything that you see will have got to you through some form of road freight logistics. Even down to the water in the fridge or the milk, Um, or your groceries if you have home delivery of groceries. And even if you don't, the delivery to the store is all done by road freight. So everything you touch has probably got to you by some form of road freight. And that's what makes it economically important. It's the oil that keeps everything moving. 
That was Phil Greening there, a professor of logistics and sustainability. His work focuses on finding decarbonisation pathways in the road freight sector. So in other words, working out how it can get to net zero emissions. It accounts for the majority of carbon emissions from transport. Other modes of transport, sea, plane, train, account for a much lower proportion of overall emissions and are relatively easy to decarbonise compared to road freight. The added challenge for road freight is that it's a worldwide problem, not just a local problem. So trains in the UK are slightly different to trains anywhere else. Road freight is exactly the same. It's the same vehicles, it's the same emissions. Exactly. We rely on it so much and it's obviously such a huge kind of player in the carbon game, I suppose. I'm interested in what he said about why road freight is more difficult to decarbonise than something like air transport, because I would have thought that it's just as difficult to change the fuel of an aircraft as it is to change the fuel of a lorry if they're both carbon based. Because it's the same problem as you would get with air travel in that the batteries themselves can weigh several tonnes. Mm. So then how do you get a plane up into the air when it's got such a heavy battery on it? And with a heavy goods vehicle, if they actually design one that has an electric battery, there's a real issue there because you'll be able to carry less materials or less goods, which means that you'll need more road freight on the road, more HGVs on the road. So that's why he's saying it's this really difficult nut to crack, I guess, because it's just like a logistical nightmare. And I guess actually as well, with aeroplanes, you can put those goods instead of an aeroplane onto a ship, maybe. And I know that ships have a much lower carbon footprint than air traffic. But you obviously can't sail a ship everywhere. So by the time you get to the country that you're getting to, it's then got to always travel by road or rail, I guess. 79% of all freight that moves within the UK is from road and then only 13% is by water, Mm. 8% is by rail. A lot of the stuff will come to us, like you say, by water originally, but then it's almost like the the veins in the body that the blood moves, you know, all around by these sort of networks of roads. It's completely integral um, and integrated. So it's like 196 billion tonne kilometres of domestic freight moved within the UK in 2019. I mean, that is just seismic. Mm. Here's Phil on why decarbonising home heating is easier than road freight, in his opinion. The challenge... Um, for decarbonising heating, for example, is to convert it to some form of electric heating using renewable energy. That's relatively simple to do. All houses have electricity, in in this country at least. Um, So we're just talking about changing from gas central heating into electric central heating, but the energy supply is already provided. When we're talking about road freight, All the vehicles that we use at the moment are diesel and they don't have electricity supplied to them or hydrogen. So there's big infrastructure needs that have to be satisfied if we're going to go down these alternative energy routes. So big investments in infrastructure. I'm really glad that Phil mentioned hydrogen because this is completely my wheelhouse now <laughs> of technology. So my, I did my PhD back in the day on hydrogen storage technologies. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's a real area of excitement, this idea of being able to switch our sort of transport solutions from something like diesel or electrics to hydrogen because hydrogen is um, a very 
green material. You know, you, you can create it from seawater using green electricity. And it has the potential to be a very lightweight and portable power solution. But the infrastructure thing is what is holding it back. So it's not beyond the realms of technology to be able to change all trucks into hydrogen powered trucks. It's safe, it's doable, the technology's there. But the problem is, you know, we don't currently have hydrogen refueling stations really in many places in the UK. You can drive currently from London to South Wales using hydrogen. There's a few little stations along that way, but each one costs close to a million dollars, or at least it did when I was researching this back in the day. Wow. And so, you know, compare that to the electricity grid that we already have. <laughs> and it, it's a no-brainer as to why we would want to power things with electricity because the infrastructure is there. But hydrogen does promise a really nice, lightweight, low-carbon solution, particularly for trucks and HGVs, which have a much more sort of predictable route and a predictable place that they would always come back to. Um, so hydrogen-powered buses are really popular because they always come back to the same depot, so you only need one refuelling station for a large number of miles. And similarly with HGVs, you know, they would tend to stick to the major highway routes in the country. I see, because we've had our first double-decker hydrogen bus launched in London earlier this year, I think. Yes. But yeah, like you say, it's it's stuck to a pretty neat route and that's how it's able to do it. Glasgow has like a fleet of, well, it's got something like 22 electric buses. They've got set routes for them and they all come back to this depot, which is like the largest of its kind um, for recharging buses. But it's got a limited application right now. And it's the same with electric cars in Scotland. You know, you've got to look at the range of them. So it's all well and good that we've got more electric cars. But, you know, do they have the range to travel the highlands, for example, in rural communities? Yeah. And can you charge them if you... Uh, live in a tenement house or in you know densely populated areas if you don't have your own garage so yeah. there's all these problems with the infrastructure it needs to sort of catch up with the technology and I think when we talk about consumer vehicles consumers are a lot less predictable <laughs> so you know our consumers would want to be driving long distances into the highlands into remote areas whereas you know the freight stuff would be less likely to it's much more predictable the routes that they will be taking and so I can see why it'd be a kind of bit lower hanging fruit to decarbonise because the types of modelling that they're able to do will be a lot more accurate compared to consumers that are quite flighty. <laughs> right, okay. Well, well, we'll come to consumer behaviour a little later. Cool. But right now, here's Phil on why logistics is a really exciting, dynamic area to work in. There's a lot of things happening at the same time right now. So we've got um, more data so we can make better plans for our logistics operations. We can share the data across company boundaries, which means organisations can collaborate on new software platforms. We have new energy being made available to us. So we have to think about the, the constraints that that new energy introduces, such as charging time. Um, we've got a, a big drive towards um, autonomy um, and autonomous vehicles. And that's really exciting because the vehicles then can operate 24 hours a day. They don't have to drive at 50 miles an hour. They can drive slowly. They can be modular in construction. Uh, they can deliver the goods directly from the warehouse to your house. There's a lot going on around the space of logistics that will change almost everything in the world. The way that the lettuce in your fridge got to you has involved a lot of people, a lot of hands touching that lettuce. Um, in the future, 
uh, it could all be automated and the grower of the lettuce could know before you do that uh, you're going to need lettuce in three days' time. What a strange thought. Exactly. And you can imagine that it could be fine-tuned to such an extent that it really reduces food waste because they know exactly what the demand is going to be or they can predict what the demand's going to be and then supply exactly what's needed. I mean, he's convinced me. I came (laughs) off after chatting to Phil. I was like, wow, like my mind had been blown and we've not even got into this virtual world's agent-based modelling stuff yet. Around this issue of logistics, of course, is a different area of the logistics of manufacture and how that's going to change in the future. So they will have to be taking that into account, you know, the switch from potentially international manufacture to more local manufacture tends to be the trend that I've seen anyway in in the conversations that people are having. You know, can you produce stuff locally? Could you have neighbourhood 3D printers to make things rather than importing things all around the world? Yeah, it's think global, act local, this sort of cosmopolitan localism, trying to make it more small scale, more local with less of a carbon footprint. And that, that could be the future. We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watts Business School in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate about how being at the university is giving them new and brilliant opportunities out there in the real world. Here's Reshma Matai from India, who gained a Master's with Distinction in Operations Management at Harriet Watt's Dubai campus earlier this year. At Bridgestone, what I'm doing is handling the supply chain planning Uh, supplier relationships, customer relationships for about 54 distributors in 50 countries. I landed uh, this job while I was doing my second semester in Heritage University. All my classmates were from different sectors and they were already from the industry. And Heritage being a university which encouraged us students to speak openly, interact in class and share our ideas Rather than just uh, being a shower of words from professors and lecturers, what we had was an interactive session from which we could build our own knowledge. Uh, Rather than just uh, grasping or learning the existing theories, we got the opportunity to think ahead in time and to come up with plans that could actually work for the future. So with a lot of technologies like IoT, machine learning, artificial intelligence and all that coming in, we do have a lot of opportunity in supply chain, which is highly data driven to bring in all these new technologies into our sector. No one wise would miss the opportunity to go to Heritage. If you would like to find out more about the course that I did or anything else that you're interested in, you should visit hw.ac.uk. You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast by Harriet Watt University with Anna Pajajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far, we've been hearing from Phil Greening, a professor from Edinburgh Business School at Harriet Watt University. And still to come, we'll be talking about how gamification and alternative worlds are helping researchers work out how to decarbonise society. 
Now, Dr. Agnesa Spinellis is an assistant professor of information systems management. She's also a member of the Research Centre for Logistics and Sustainability, and she leads this research on gamification, and it's used for sustainable development. That's the focus of it. And we touched upon gamification previously in the series, Anna, if you remember that. Yeah, I remember we talked about how it was being used in the world of fashion and sustainability and making fashion sort of more sustainable for the world going forward. Um, And we talked about how gamification is using the elements from gaming in a non-gaming context. So you've probably heard of apps like Headspace for meditation or Duolingo for language learning, but um, it has much wider reaching potential across lots and lots of different sectors. Agnesa is really interested in how we can use gamification to sort of facilitate behavioural change for more sustainable behaviour. I can give an example of uh, two projects that I'm working on just now. The first one has to do with driver behaviour. We are working on um, developing a gamified application that will be used by drivers to improve their uh, eco-driving performance. And this drills down to uh, fuel consumption. Uh, If they manage to reduce uh, their fuel consumption because um, they perhaps don't accelerate as much, don't uh, do harsh braking, then this will mean that they will also reduce uh, CO2 emissions uh, created by logistics, especially road freight logistics. So we are looking at uh, what motivates drivers when they drive Uh, and currently we are working with two organizations. With one of them we are looking at uh, van delivery drivers. Uh, In the other one we look at uh, heavy duty vehicle drivers. So we are looking at uh, their motivations, at uh, what they think about when they drive, what uh, might impact their decisions uh, on the road. So they, they basically gather data on what drivers are doing, like if they if they brake too harshly or if their sort of fuel consumption is higher than it needs to be. And then the idea is, this is quite early stages, but then they'd be able to sort of provide feedback to the drivers to help them reduce their consumption. And, you know, that's why she's brought been brought into this research centre is to apply her work that she's used previously on gamification within this world of logistics to to help drivers make better choices basically that's so interesting so could you have like a device on the dashboard which is showing you in real time kind of how sustainably you're driving and then give points or i don't know some kind of yeah gamified reward system for driving more sustainably and then have that immediate feedback loop for the drivers i think that's the sort of stuff that they're looking at and there was there was an interesting point where she said that actually they were looking at sort of leaderboards but then they realized that a lot of drivers Mm -hmm. don't actually want to compete against each other they're more interested in sort of competing against themselves yeah. And that wasn't uh that wasn't really a very productive method. So they're still working out, you know, how they can tweak the system in order to facilitate this behavioral change. But it's you know, it's this weird twilight zone where, you know, gaming elements are becoming sort of me- intermeshed with our real everyday lives. Yeah, like the Strava of the logistics world. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> Who can be the greenest driver from London to Glasgow? <laughs> yeah, not the not the fastest, because that would be a yeah. whole other dangerous sort of kettle of fish. <laughs> yeah. Agnesa has a sort of vision for the future of gamification that she shared with me. 
I would like to see a more systemic approach, and this is where I think Hirutwat is uh, doing quite well. For example, currently in the UK we experience shortages of uh, HDV drivers. And with one of the partners on this project, what we are doing is um, looking at how this gamification tool can also be used to identify talented drivers and to offer them pathways to progress towards uh, getting a license and becoming a heavy-duty uh, vehicle driver. What future gamification has? It has to do with the electrification of road freight logistics, for example. Uh, the electrification is coming. We will see more electrified vehicles, electrification of roads. Uh, with that comes the behavioral challenge. So, for example, if we are talking about uh, driver behavior patterns, the driver behavior might be a difference that it makes between having to stop for 30 minutes to recharge and uh, driving all the way to the final destination in one go. Behaviour change is such an important part of understanding how these new technologies will be developed. Um, I remember when I was working in hydrogen a few years ago, all of the technology is there, it works, it's proven to be safe. But if the public and consumers don't perceive it as safe and don't perceive it as an option that they want to use, then there's no point in you know, producing that technology and, and producing those vehicles if it's not going to be taken up because of you know, human factors. And so understanding that behavioural change and how it will be integrated into the adoption of these new technologies is completely crucial to their success. So Ag Agnesa, she thinks that really the biggest, the biggest challenge is persuading people to, you know, get out of their cars and to take public transport or to, to switch to electric or how do we encourage people? And that's where I guess policy comes in, more cycling infrastructure. We need to make the greener methods more affordable because of affordability is a really key issue. Yeah, definitely. And using policy to disincentivize as well as incentivize. There are lots of cities now contemplating, you know, charging drivers of polluting vehicles to drive through the city centre. London's had that for a while. Um, I've got a diesel van and they've just expanded that zone in London. So now every time I want to drive anywhere, I have to pay £12.50 a day. Gosh. And it changed my behaviour overnight. Now I only take, I mean, it's a camper van anyway, so it's four holidays. But there have, I will admit there have been times when I drove 10 minutes down the road <laughs> to take the dog <laughs> to the park. <laughs> um, and now obviously I would never do that. So like those behavioural changes using incentives and disincentives is so powerful and it has to come from sort of centralised government making the right choices. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, 25% of journeys are under one mile, so they can yeah. be done by by foot or by bike. And we've got this net zero strategy from the government, and they're saying that by 2030, 50% of all journeys, they want to be taken by foot or by bike. So active mm. travel, it's not only doing something that's good for the collective, that's good for the whole and the world. It's also good for you. It's good for your health. You know, you've got the, uh, an average age like a decade younger than people who don't cycle. So mm. really crucial. And it's interesting that you mentioned London as well. London is the only place in the UK where the mayor actually has 
they have power over not only transport but planning as well. So they have this London plan where they can actually pull both of those levers at the same time. So housing can be built mm. in areas where there is green travel or there's a, you know like cycle lanes or there's bus networks or whatever. So having those two things integrated in London has been really beneficial and you can look at the integration of the bus and the um, underground network in London is a real success story. I mean, it bucks the trend in the UK that a majority of journeys are taken by public transport and not private. Um, but that really is the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, I mean, that model, if it's been successful in London, should surely be rolled out to you know everywhere else as well, all the other big cities. A big aspect of Phil's work is using these virtual worlds that we mentioned earlier. And what this is, is basically something called agent-based modelling. Have you heard about that before, Anna? I haven't, no. Is this to do with like secret agents in MI5? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he's actually actually an undercover agent. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of like, it is an extension of sort of gaming, I guess, in a way. It's like Sims or something like that. You know, it's, okay. it's like a complex world where these individuals have sort of agency to make decisions and then they can tweak around the edges and they can implement policy changes or objectives and then see how this complex system interacts with these rules and what what are the recurring themes that come up and stuff like that. So I'm not going to butcher the explanation anymore. <laughs> I'll just have a little listen to Phil. In its purest sense, agent-based modelling allows the things that we create in this virtual world, which we hope are representative of the real world, things like people, trucks, companies, warehouses, ports, to learn from their experience in the virtual world. So they pick up on the environment in which they exist and they learn the best way to behave in that environment to create the best outcomes. And we tell them what the best outcomes are. And and this is a new way of thinking Military leaders have always used wargaming as as a way of testing their strategies. So they would have two teams play out against each other and they would learn um, what was the best strategy. The thing that's changed is that now we have big computers, powerful computers that allow us to do very large-scale, sophisticated models that run for long periods of time. And that allows us to explore not just one version of of the possible future, but thousands of versions. And to examine those thousands of parallel universes to find out what works in most of them. What are the robust solutions? And those are the ones we want to identify because the future is still going to be uncertain. But at least if we pick something that we think is going to fit most of the future scenarios and be beneficial, then we're doing a good job. So they play out these worlds at an accelerated speed, which we've heard before in the net zero carbon capture and storage episode, where like decades can actually pass in hours and that allows Mm. them to explore these different variables, tweak and then rerun the model again. And then they pour over the data and they look for recurring themes, which they call fundamental structures. And these are the really important bits because the things that crop up time and time again are the things that they really need to address. Yeah, I really like how he described it as a robust solution, you know, proving that using lots and lots of models and things coming up time and time again. Um, I really like that as an approach. The other thing he told me was that this is totally different from other modelling because 
it's not like covid modeling that we were talking about where it's like oh well if we introduce uh, vaccines then will that bring down transmission rates and hospitalizations because what they're doing here is they're not just making an extension of our current reality they're imagining a radically different future where mm. things aren't like they are right now yeah it's really clever the way that they're able to you know, project so far into the future when most of us can't even imagine what we're going to be doing for Christmas, <laughs> let alone, you know, what's going to be happening decades from now. And so to be able to recognise the things that are successful over those types of timeframes with so many moving variables is really clever. One of the big challenges that still remains with agent-based modelling is how confident can you be that you've reflected human behaviour in the model? And the direction of thinking in this, and this, this is really the leading edge of agent-based modeling and complex systems theory, is can you develop computers and computer experiments and computer models that interact with real people so that real people become agents in your models and they are reacting to agents in your models? And they therefore play an important part in training the model about human behaviour. That is really the leading edge of where we're at. Can humans play in the virtual world whilst also playing in the real world? And will they learn from the computer models and take that learning back into the real world? It is a very interesting area and in many ways decarbonisation of logistics is just the outcome that we're seeking to achieve. The journey to that is infinitely interesting and full of infinite possibilities. Bill and his team, they're leading one of the UK's biggest research teams looking at agent-based modelling and logistics. So they, they, they are really pushing the envelope here. And what was quite interesting was he was saying that they've grown their team from like three people five years ago and they now have like 12 and they've brought on loads of mathematicians, data scientists, agent-based modelers, whereas before they had, you know, someone who was looking at logistics and someone who was looking at policy. But now, you know, they're, they're really moving from looking at trucks to actually looking at algorithms and data and looking at gamification. So you can sort of see how much they've changed over the years. Yeah, and diversifying their sort of knowledge base as well, I guess. You know, the Harriet Watt Business School, this is all part of a wider effort from the university to decarbonise travel and transport and even wider society, you know, really reflecting the need for a whole systems approach for reducing carbon emissions. Yeah, and, and logistics, they've sort of pinpointed that as a really hard, you know, difficult problem that they're going to solve. But, you yeah. know, there's huge challenges, you know, across public and private transport and travel. Um, mm. And, you know, we've, we've touched on this and we've talked about a lot of these issues in previous episodes. There's the cost of public transport versus private transport. There's our change in kind of working society as well you know we went from a commuter culture where you know big city hubs held the jobs and everybody came in from more affordable housing outside the city and commuted in whereas now that whole model is changing and so how road systems change how logistics change as a result of that will be I think quite profound in the next 5, 10, 20 years um, so being able to incorporate that into modelling and predict behaviours based on our kind of new way of living and working is going to be such a big challenge, but super interesting. And, and yeah, using this agent-based modelling, hopefully like the next generation of scientists, they'll be able to see the benefit 
of collaborating, using this sort of interdisciplinary modeling with, you know, researchers across multiple disciplines mm. and then explore the sort of complex social dynamics of climate change in order to, you know, tackle this massive, massive problem, not just the wicked problem of logistics, but, you know, carbon emissions and getting to net zero as well. The pandemic took so many of us by surprise and that behaviour change was so rapid that, you know, lots of industries were left reeling for a very long time. But if you've got computer models that can run overnight and tell you, OK, instead of taking this from A to B now, the people are here, so you need to take it from A to C or whatever it is, um, you know, that modelling can accelerate solutions that can be found in logistics and in finding solutions to climate change yeah as well. and it's zero risk you know you can yeah. tweak and you can modify and you can see how these complex systems will react without actually having to do anything in the real world but yeah. in doing so it will have massive consequences you know when you roll that out so like one of the things that people have talked about agent-based modeling in order for it to be successful it has to be like an idea or a concept or a system that can be thought of in your head that you can sort of play out in your head. So it shouldn't be sort of more complex than that. Um, okay. So I've heard people talk about how it's like uh, a good agent-based modeler is like a, a good sailor or something because they've got <laughs> experience of lots of different stormy seas and situations and all of these different sort of hypotheticals that they've lived through in the past allows them to face the current or the future problem, you know, more efficiently and with more experience. So what agent-based modelling is doing is sort of giving us more road miles, giving us more experience mm. of solving these problems without actually having to play them out in the real world. Like a flight simulator for a pilot. Exactly. <laughs> This series has been like a super fascinating journey. I've learned so much. We've done stuff on sustainability and fashion. I've learned about nature-based solutions, robotics and healthcare, carbon capture and storage. And my mind has just been sort of continuously blown and boggled. One of my main kind of takeaways from this series has been seeing just how interdisciplinary now research really is. You know, this episode we've talked about how understanding human behaviour can affect transport and logistics and climate change, but we've seen how artificial intelligence interfaces with psychology and fashion and, you know, all of these areas which 10, 20 years ago would have been separated in different departments or different institutions. Now these people are coming together and really collaborating, working together and kind of cross-pollinating their knowledge in order to find really innovative solutions to huge problems that our society has. So it's given me a lot of hope for the future, hearing from these academics for sure. Thanks for listening to A Future Made. That's it for this series, but we'll be back for another one soon to explore and unpack the pioneering research going on at Heriot Watt University. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made. Or you can head over to Heriot Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk. 